Chapter Thirty One of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Untoward Disclosures. Coincident with these public disturbances and of subsequent hearing upon them was the discovery by Editor Hagenin of Cowperwood's relationship with Cecily. It came about not through Eileen, who was no longer willing to fight Cowperwood in this matter, but through Hagenin's lady society editor, who, hearing rumors in the social world, springing from heaven knows where, and being beholden to Hagenin for many favors, had carried the matter to him in a very direct way. Hagenin, a man of insufficient worldliness in spite of his journalistic profession, scarcely believed it. Cowperwood was so suave, so commercial. He had heard many things concerning him, his past, but Cowperwood's present state in Chicago was such, it seemed to him, as to preclude petty affairs of this kind. Still, the name of his daughter being involved, he took the matter up with Cecily, who, under pressure, confessed. She made the usual plea that she was of age, that she wished to live her own life, logic, which she had gathered largely from Cowperwood's attitude. Hagenin did nothing about it at first, thinking to send Cecily off to an aunt in Nebraska, but finding her intractable and fearing some counter-advice or reprisal on the part of Cowperwood, who, by the way, had endorsed paper to the extent of $100,000 for him, he decided to discuss matters first. It meant a cessation of relations and some inconvenient financial readjustments, but it had to be. He was just on the point of calling on Cowperwood when the latter, unaware as yet of the latest development in regard to Cecily, and having some variation of his council program to discuss with Hagenin, asked him over the phone to lunch. Hagenin was much surprised, but in a way relieved. "'I'm busy,' he said, very heavily. "'But can you not come to the office sometime today? There is something I would like to see you about.' Cowperwood, imagining that there was some editorial or political development on foot which might be of interest to him, made an appointment for shortly after four. He drove to the publisher's office in the press building and was greeted by a grave and almost despondent man. "'Mr. Cowperwood,' began Hagenin, when the financier entered, smart and trig, his usual air of genial sufficiency written all over him. "'I have known you now for something like fourteen years, and during this time I have shown you nothing but courtesy and good will.' It is true that quite recently you have done me various financial favors, but that was more due, I thought, to the sincere friendship you bore me than to anything else. Quite accidentally, I have learned of the relationship that exists between you and my daughter. I have recently spoken to her, and she admitted all that I need to know. Common decency, it seems to me, might have suggested to you that you leave my child out of the list of women you have degraded. Since it has not, I merely wish to say to you, and Mr. Hagenin's face was very tense and white, that the relationship between you and me is ended. The one hundred thousand dollars you have endorsed for me will be arranged for otherwise as soon as possible, and I hope you will return to me the stock of this paper 
that you hold as collateral. Another type of man, Mr. Cowperwood, might attempt to make you suffer in another way. I presume that you have no children of your own, or that if you have, you lack the parental instinct. Otherwise, you could not have injured me in this fashion. I believe that you will live to see that this policy does not pay in Chicago or anywhere else. Hagenin turned slowly on his heel toward his desk. Cowperwood, who had listened very patiently and very fixedly, without a tremor of an eyelash, merely said, "'There seems to be no common intellectual ground, Mr. Hagenin, upon which you and I can meet in this matter. You cannot understand my point of view. I could not possibly adopt yours. However, as you wish it, the stock will be returned to you upon receipt of my endorsements. I cannot say more than that.' He turned and walked unconcernedly out, thinking that it was too bad to lose the support of so respectable a man, but also that he could do without it. It was silly the way parents insisted on their daughters being something that they did not wish to be. Hagenin stood by his desk after Cowperwood had gone, wondering where he should get $100,000 quickly, and also what he should do to make his daughter see the error of her ways. It was an astonishing blow he had received, he thought, in the house of a friend. It occurred to him that Walter Melville Hysop, who was succeeding mightily with his two papers, might come to his rescue, and that later he could repay him when the press was more prosperous. He went out to his house in a quandary concerning life and chance, while Cowperwood went to the Chicago Trust Company to confer with Videra, and later out to his own home to consider how he should equalize this loss. The state and fate of Cecily Hagenin was not of so much importance as many other things on his mind at this time. Far more serious were his cogitations with regard to a liaison he had recently ventured to establish with Mrs. Hosmer Hand, wife of an eminent investor and financier. Hand was a solid, phlegmatic, heavy-thinking person who had some years before lost his first wife, to whom he had been eminently faithful. After that, for a period of years, he had been a lonely speculator, attending to his vast affairs, but finally, because of his enormous wealth, his rather presentable appearance and social rank, he had been entrapped by much social attention on the part of a Mrs. Jesse Drew Barrett into marrying her daughter, Caroline, a dashing skip of a girl who was clever, incisive, calculating, and intensely gay. Since she was socially ambitious and without much heart, the thought of Hans' millions and how advantageous would be her situation in case he should die had enabled her to overlook quite easily his heavy, unyouthful appearance and to see him in the light of a lover. There was criticism, of course. Hand was considered a victim, and Caroline and her mother designing minxes and cats. But since the wealthy financier was truly ensnared, it behooved friends and future satellites to be courteous, and so they were. The wedding was very well attended. Mrs. Hand began to give house parties, teas, musicales, and receptions on a lavish scale. Cowperwood never met either her or her husband 
until he was well launched on his streetcar program. Needing $250,000 in a hurry and finding the Chicago Trust Company, the Lake City Bank, and other institutions heavily loaded with his securities, he turned in a moment of inspirational thought to hand. Cowperwood was always a great borrower. His paper was out in large quantities. He introduced himself frequently to powerful men in this way, taking long or short loans at high or low rates of interest, as the case might be, and sometimes finding someone who he could work with or use. In the case of Hand, though the latter was ostensibly of the enemy's camp, the Schiehart Union Gas Douglas Trust Company crowd, nevertheless Cowperwood had no hesitation in going to him. He wished to overcome or forestall any unfavorable impression. Though Hand, a solemn man of shrewd but honest nature, had heard a number of unfavorable rumors, he was inclined to be fair and think the best. Perhaps Cowperwood was merely the victim of envious rivals. When the latter first called on him at his office in the Rookery Building, he was most cordial. "'Come in, Mr. Cowperwood,' he said. "'I have heard a great deal about you from one person and another, mostly from the newspapers. What can I do for you?' Cowperwood exhibited $500,000 worth of West Chicago Street Railway stock. I want to know if I can get $250,000 on those by tomorrow morning. Hand, a placid man, looked at the securities peacefully. What's the matter with your own bank? He was referring to the Chicago Trust Company. Can it take care of them for you? Loaded up with other things just now, smiled Cowperwood ingratiatingly. Well, if I can believe all the papers say... You're going to wreck these roads, or Chicago, or yourself. But I don't live by the papers. How long would you want it for? Six months, perhaps. A year, if you choose. Hand turned over the securities, eyeing their gold seals. Five hundred thousand dollars worth of six percent. West Chicago preferred, he commented. Are you earning six percent? We're earning eight right now. You'll live to see the day when these shares... We'll sell at $200 and pay 12% at that. And you've quadrupled the issue of the old company? Well, Chicago's growing. Leave them here until tomorrow or bring them back. Send over or call me and I'll tell you. They talked a little while on street railway and corporation matters. Han wanted to know something concerning West Chicago land, a region adjoining Ravenswood. Cowperwood gave him his best advice. The next day he phoned, and the stocks, so Hand informed him, were available. He would send a check over. So thus a tentative friendship began. It lasted until the relationship between Cowperwood and Mrs. Hand was consummated and discovered. In Caroline Barrett, as she occasionally preferred to sign herself, Cowperwood encountered a woman who was as restless and fickle as himself, but not so shrewd. Socially ambitious, she was anything but socially conventional, and she did not care for hand. Once married, she had planned to repay herself, in part, by a very gay existence. The affair between her and Cowperwood had begun at a dinner at the magnificent residence of hand on the North Shore Drive, overlooking the lake. 
Cowperwood had gone to talk over with her husband various Chicago matters. Mrs. Hand was excited by his risque reputation. A little woman in stature, with intensely white teeth, red lips, which she did not hesitate to rouge on occasion, brown hair, and small brown eyes, which had a gay, searching, defiant twinkle in them, she did her best to be interesting, clever, witty, and she was. "'I know Frank Cowperwood by reputation, anyhow,' she exclaimed, holding out a small, white, jeweled hand, the nails of which, at their juncture with the flesh, were tinged with henna, and the palms of which were slightly rouged. Her eyes blazed and her teeth gleamed. One can scarcely read of anything else in the Chicago papers. Cowperwood returned his most winning beam. I'm delighted to meet you, Mrs. Hand. I have read of you, too. But I hope you don't believe all the papers say about me. And if I did, it wouldn't hurt you in my estimation. To do is to be talked about in these days. Cowperwood, because of his desire to employ the services of Hand, was at his best. He kept the conversation within conventional lines, but all the while he was exchanging secret, unobserved smiles with Mrs. Hand, who he realized at once had married Hand for his money and was bent, under a somewhat jealous espionage, to have a good time anyhow. There is a kind of eagerness that goes with those who are watched and wish to escape that gives them a gay, electric awareness and sparkle in the presence of an opportunity for release. Mrs. Hand had this. Cowperwood, a past master in the matter of femininity, studied her hands, her hair, her eyes, her smile. After some contemplation, he decided, other things being equal, that Mrs. Hand would do, and that he could be interested if she were very much interested in him. Her telling eyes and smiles, the heightened color of her cheeks, indicated after a time that she was. Meeting him on the street one day, not long after they had first met, she told him that she was going for a visit to friends in Okonomowoc, in Wisconsin. "'I don't suppose you ever get up that far north in summer, do you?' she asked, with an air, and smiled. "'I never have,' he replied. "'But there's no telling what I might do, if I were bantered. I suppose you ride and canoe?' "'Oh, yes, and play tennis and golf, too.' But where would a mere idler like me stay? Oh, there are several good hotels. There's never any trouble about that. I suppose you ride yourself. After a fashion, replied Cowperwood, who was an expert. Witness, then, the casual encounter on horseback early one Sunday morning in the painted hills of Wisconsin of Frank Algernon Cowperwood and Caroline Hand, a jaunty, racing canter, side by side, idle talk concerning people, scenery, conveniences, his usual direct suggestions and love-making, and then, subsequently, the day of reckoning, if such it might be called, came later. Caroline Hand was, perhaps, unduly reckless. She admired Cowperwood greatly without really loving him. He found her interesting, principally, because she was young, debonair, sufficient, a new type. They met in Chicago after a time, instead of in Wisconsin, then in Detroit, where she had friends, then in Rockford, 
where his sister had gone to live. It was easy for him, with his time and means. Finally, Duane Kingsland, wholesale flower merchant, religious, moral, conventional, who knew Cowperwood and his repute, encountered Mrs. Han and Cowperwood first near Okonomowoc one summer's day, and later in Randolph Street near Cowperwood's bachelor rooms. Being the man that he was, and knowing old Hand well, he thought it was his duty to ask the latter if his wife knew Cowperwood intimately. There was an explosion in the Hand home. Mrs. Hand, when confronted by her husband, denied, of course, that there was anything wrong between her and Cowperwood. Her elderly husband, from a certain telltale excitement and resentment in her manner, did not believe this. He thought at once of confronting Cowperwood, but, being heavy and practical, he finally decided to sever all business relationships with him and fight him in other ways. Mrs. Hand was watched very closely, and a suborned maid discovered an old note she had written to Cowperwood. An attempt to persuade her to leave for Europe, as old Butler had once attempted to send Eileen years before, raised a storm of protest, but she went. Hand, far from being neutral, if not friendly, became quite the most dangerous and forceful of all Cowperwood's Chicago enemies. He was a powerful man. His wrath was boundless. He looked upon Cowperwood now as a dark and dangerous man, one of whom Chicago would be well rid. End of chapter 31